Welcome to The Drummer's Pathway, the podcast about music, life, and the creative process. Hello, I'm Michael Scott, and welcome to The Drummer's Pathway podcast. On this episode, my guest is drummer Glenn Milcham. Glenn is a Toronto-based musician who, for over 40 years, has performed and recorded with countless artists in a variety of genres. Glenn is probably best known as a member of the iconic Canadian band Blue Rodeo, which he joined in December 1991. Glenn is also a singer and songwriter. In addition to his 2019 solo acoustic album, Fates Conspire, he fronted his own band, The Swallows, as the lead singer, guitarist, and composer for more than a decade. In our interview, we talk about his experiences as a member of Blue Rodeo over the years. We also discuss the creative process of the many different projects he has been involved in and why it's important to continue to learn and adapt as you establish your career. Let's get started. So Glenn, for me, it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be connecting with you this evening. I have been a lifelong Blue Rodeo fan since the beginning. As I have mentioned previously, I have attended 49 Blue Rodeo concerts. And in a couple of weeks when you're playing in Hamilton on your current leg of this tour, I'll be attending concert number 50. And so I've been a follower of yours for years, and I've been a huge fan of all of your work, all of your contributions to this iconic band, as well as your contribution to so many other bands in this Canadian industry as well. So it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Michael. I appreciate that. So you began your journey as a drummer around the age of eight, stumbling into one of your neighbor's houses who i believe used to be the babysitter for you and your twin brother and you walked in and you kind of got a view of the drum set at his he headed his house and that's kind of what sparked this interest i think so i mean that sort of i that was sort of upon reflection when i was thought later on in life why did i choose drums because it's it's not surprising that my father was a uh, my father never played any instruments, but he was a huge music fan, and his absolute number one pastime was listening to jazz. So it's not surprising to me that I was into music, but I always wondered why drums. And I thought, well, maybe it was because our neighbor Carl Hughes uh, had this amazing Ludwig drum set with like double, like he had double kicks. He had it was like if I recall, it was kind of like a maybe a blue marine kind of kit i can't i can't the the finish is vague in my mind it might have been like a kind of ringo finish but in blue instead of black and white and and uh and it was like he had double kicks and he probably four toms and it was just like this magnificent kit right and he has in the basement and i i you know his basement was super cool he had like soft machine posters and stuff you know he was a cool dude and uh so I, I feel like maybe that is what drew me to drums, but I don't know. I, it was just also something that I physically enjoyed doing. Like, I think around the age of eight, I also realized that I could play simple patterns with my hands. You know, I could play on like a horse galloping pattern yeah. or I could play triplets, like right, left, left, right, left, left, right, left, left. And I was like, wow, wow. I, 
I could do that. I, maybe drumming is a thing for me. I, I don't know. And then from there, I, I just sort of started to become obsessed with drums. And uh, but yeah, you know, so I'm not 100% sure it was because of our neighbor. But um, but yeah, something, I don't know, something clicked in me when I was eight. And I just became fascinated with drums. And I started, I begged my parents for a drum set. They bought me bongos first, which was a good decision because they didn't want to spend hundreds of dollars on a drum kit and have me lose interest in two months or something. And, uh, but I was, you know, I would go to drum stores and I, I remember obsessively looking at the Ludwig drum catalog from like 1972. I, I wonder if I still have it somewhere, I, but I can remember just about every picture in that catalog. Um, so yeah, I just, I was just something I was drawn to. And, and my dad got me my first kit at the age of 10 and, uh, no, I've never stopped. My first drum set, my my parents helped me buy when I was probably around 11 or 12. And I think it was an old Stuart drum set, <laughs> um, a little value kit, which was probably the worst drum set I ever owned and probably my favorite drum set Oh, interesting. Because, because it was so magical at the time to actually get access to this instrument that you loved before right. that, um, because I would always play in school. I would uh, what I would do in the basement is I would set up buckets and just different cans and right. I would just kind of you know kick the floor and I remember convincing my music teacher in um in middle school to allow me to sign out that the crash symbols because I was a percussionist in the school and you couldn't right. take them home but he liked me so he let me sign out the crash symbols because I said I wanted to practice my classical crash symbol technique what I really did was I took them home I tied mm -hmm. ropes to them I tied them All to right. the basement ceiling and then I had them <laughs> sitting above my little bucket kit so as I'd be playing I actually had real symbols to hit but they would fling around the room so oh, yeah. I had to watch to make sure I actually didn't get hit in the head while I did this but it was it's just joyful to kind of get that experience and, and just really begin really begin that journey yeah yeah i used to uh, also make little homemade kits out of paint tins and pots and pans and things like that so yeah, i can totally relate when you were a kid your family was very musically inclined in terms of being a fan although as you said your father wasn't a, a musician mm -hmm. What sort of experiences did you have? Did they take you out to a lot of shows and give you a lot of exposure to live music at that time? Well, my dad used to like to take us to shows at Ontario Place, at the Forum in Ontario Place. And so, you know, I remember seeing Count Basie, uh, Wynton Marsalis, Buddy Rich, uh, Oscar Peterson, Cleo Lane, Chuck Mangione, <laughs> who my mom loved uh people like that so we went to see a lot of um jazz musicians and uh you know it's funny because i i am and i i i am a real lover of jazz and i guess that was something that was just imbued in me as from a young age you know i still love listening to jazz music and it's interesting as as i get older how similar my tastes are now to my dad's <laughs> like i like a lot of things he doesn't like like he doesn't he doesn't listen to slayer or something <laughs> <laughs> but uh but i but i also love a lot of stuff like a, you know i've actually gone out and bought a lot of records that my dad used to have when i was a kid like chico hamilton records and bb king records and you know just records that i grew up with and that um I still think sound amazing. So, um, so I'm glad, you know, and uh, listening to that music uh, gives you a certain appreciation 
you know, it's like I love rock music, obviously, and and I'm I'm you know a rock drummer first and foremost. But um, growing up listening to to jazz gives you an appreciation for subtlety and nuance and and uh, musical detail uh, that you don't necessarily get just listening to most rock music. So. Um, so that was a, a valuable thing for me, and and though I've I've never been in a legit j- jazz band, I do think I do think there's a lot of kind of jazz influences in my playing. Oh, absolutely! That's actually one of the things that I love about Blue Rodeo is you can tell that although Blue Rodeo is often classified kind of as a a, a country based you know rock and roll band. Mm-hmm seeing the band live it's extremely obvious that there's a collection of everyone's influences that inspires the live shows and i can definitely tell that you have a jazz influence background and an improvisational background because there are elements in blue rodeo concerts that those aspects get featured by all the members of the band. And that's mm-hmm. one of the things that I always love about the band is that you can see the depth and the growth over the band throughout mm-hmm. the years. Mm-hmm. And and I think that's one of the things that just makes makes seeing your live shows just so incredibly exciting because there is that improvisational element mm-hmm. that really comes across. Yeah, that's actually being part of the blue rodeo dna from the get-go i mean one of the brilliant things they did when they first put the band together is getting bobby wiseman on keyboards and i think bobby was just i don't know if he was a roommate or he lived in the same house as greg like i i think the way that they crossed bobby's path was kind of coincidental but the thing about bobby is that he came from the improvisor improvisatory community he studied with casey sokol who was like a, a you know a, a very advanced highly evolved improviser who taught improvisation and music at York University so you know bobby studied with him bobby you know played a lot of free music and you know he was also writing his own tunes and stuff like that so he was super into improvisation and you know very knowledgeable and experienced in that area and not necessarily just jazz improvisation he was kind of came a bit more from the world of free improvisation um but uh but that immediately became a major element of the band you know you know they they had all these songs with extended keyboard solos and things like that and uh and i think on on a certain level when they hired me i you know they you know i was coming from um I had played in bands that were similar to them. Like I, I previous to them, I played with Andrew Cash, who was kind of like, a, you know, also kind of doing a roots rock thing. But they'd known me for years before that, playing in these other sort of bands that, like the Garbage Men, and and uh, the, uh, these bands that were kind of a little more expor- experimental. Like the Garbage Men was a band I played in uh, every Wednesday at the Cameron for like four years in the mid '80s, and that band never rehearsed. We we had these songs that were sketches, and you just go and play once a week, and and you would just do what you did, and uh, you know uh, uh, there were there were no rules. It could be completely insane or very straight ahead. And Jim and Greg would come and see those shows, and um, so uh, you know. But then when they saw me, with Andrew Cash, and they were starting to think about wanting a new drummer, they realized, oh, he can he could do our thing too. So um, 
but I think probably somewhere in the back of their mind was like, you know, I also fit in with their their uh, the, you know the aspect of the band that that is uh, is about improvisation and and risk and and doing things differently every night. And that's one of the that's like that's one of the joys of being in Blue Rodeo is that you know a lot of bands, especially uh, you know bands that are you know play sort of larger venues like we do. Uh, not that we're playing, you know, mega domes or anything, but we play theaters and uh, arenas, and and you know, often those shows are very planned out. You know, you're playing stuff note for note. You know, and this song on the bridge of this song, you go stand on the X over here, and then you walk across the stage over to that X over there for the chorus. You know, and uh, we are very much not that. Like, you know, you can play. You know, there's certain things, obviously, markers you have to hit. You know, any. But but really, you could play each song slightly differently every night, and it would be fine, you know. And and that's one of the things I think that keeps the band alive and keeps the band going and keeps it interesting. Well, one of the things I've always noticed about your live shows is that I can usually tell within about the first two minutes, based on the stage dynamic, as to what direction the night is going to take. And mm -hmm. I love that because there are nights when you can tell that there's a lot of tension on the stage <laughs> oh, and there's yeah. other nights where you can tell that there's a lot of joy and yeah. it makes those moments magical so i just i love watching the 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 interaction every show has always been stellar but there's just some that just have that extra little you know uh magic and it's not just about playing all the favorite songs oh, yeah, yeah. because i'm such a deep fan into this music i just i love the different directions and those different dynamics and that's something that keeps me going back because there's always going to be those magical moments and it often comes down to the first couple of things that greg might say to the audience and that's going to dictate the dynamic yeah. for the evening greg is absolutely the wild card in the band like i mean and that is also like a crucial part of the band like there's been many nights when i've sort of thought like oh my god like why can't greg just be normal and consistent and not you know <laughs> you know and not sort of decide that like it would be really cool to pull the rug out from everybody right now you know like and uh but but that is a huge part of what the band is and i also realize you know that that is something the fans love they love that unpredictable element of the band and he is just He's like that, you know, I mean, Bob Dylan's like that. If you ever, you know, I mean, you know, there's so many Dylan clips of like, suddenly he decides the band should all get really quiet, <laughs> you know, or something, you know, and you're just sort of going, why, you know, but he's just decided that, you know, and then the whole band's trying to be really quiet and, you know, and, and it's weird, you know, but, but it, it, it brings this element of unpredictability that I, that, that keeps things fresh and interesting. So yeah, he, that's a that's a big part of who we are too. So your first recording with the band was uh, Lost Together, uh, mm -hmm. which was the uh, album number four, and that album's kind of got a bit of a rock edge. Probably one of the rockier albums in the catalog up to that point, mm -hmm. and it's got some beautiful material on it. What was that experience like kind of coming from a background that you originally had that was almost more punk and new wave based into something yeah. that was more along that genre? Well, I, you know, um, it was it was a really interesting process process joining the band at that period. They were they were in a bit of disarray at that point. So I remember joining the band and, you know, Bobby was on his way out, Bobby Wiseman, and and he was kind of not making 
any bones about his uh, disinterest. Uh, so that was not, you know, I was sort of like, like he would, you know, we'd be rehearsing and he'd be reading the newspaper, the newspaper on his keyboard. <laughs> it's like <laughs> Read the paper, and Jim would be like, "Bobby, can you put the paper away?" You know. <laughs> so I was like, "Okay, this is weird," you know. And uh, coming into it from where I was coming from, like at that time, I was playing double pedals on my bass drum. Uh, I was playing a lot of heavier music, so I just had to streamline what I was doing. And uh, it's interesting when you listen to Lost Together because most of the drumming on that is pretty simple and straight ahead. I was, and you know, I remember Jim instructing me, like we do a lot of very straight, you know, straight ahead, single stroke rolls and which I, is not something I, you know, regard anymore. But at the time I was like, okay, straight ahead, single stroke rolls, you know, was yeah. just, you know, he was just trying to give the blueprint from blue roadie drumming, which I kind of knew because, you know, you hear it, it's pretty uh, obvious, but I mean, the other side of the coin is like, I can't be Cleve Anderson or Mark French, the drummers that preceded me. I can, I can only be me. I can, you know, I could, so I, I kind of sort of took what I thought was that general aesthetic, which was kind of about simplicity and space and tried to apply it at the same time. When you hear the endings of some of the songs, like the, uh, like, I think there's a song called angel on there that has like a, a kind of a scrub ending, you know, everybody's going, you know, and I've got the double pedals going. I'm like, yeah, use my double pedals. <laughs> and, uh, I, you know, and it took a, it took a year or so before I realized like, I probably shouldn't be playing double pedals and blue rodeo. <laughs> and it was funny when I listened back to some, some live recordings in that first year, it's like kind of, uh, kind of embarrassing. Just, uh, it was, it's like the drummer from Megadeth sitting in. And blue <laughs> but, um, yeah, but, uh, so, but basically I just had to learn to streamline what I was doing. And then, but that really became an ongoing process because, you know, because went live, you can go like, oh, okay, well, I don't have to recreate the record entirely, or I, you know, I can reinterpret the old stuff. And when you're talking about um, Lost Together being a, a more rock record, that record came out in '92, right in the middle of the whole grunge thing, and uh, and we were all like, I was way into that, and and those guys, you know, I'm I don't know if Jim was so much, but you know, Greg liked Nirvana. He went out and bought a big muff pedal, like you know, it, 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 suddenly we had distort big distortion noisy distortion pedals and and more amps and the band was the loudest it had ever been like i think at one you know there was so many vox amps on stage and and um yeah it was you know greg had big blonde curly hair Every, you know everybody was trying to be from seattle at that point you know so i you know even blue rodeo <laughs> so there's a there's a little a little touch of that uh, you know, basically of, of us sort of trying to be with the times on that record. One of the things that I find interesting as well when I look through the Blue Rodeo catalog is that there are certain albums that sort of stand out as being the fan favorites. Mm -hmm. A lot of my favorites tend to be the ones in between those yeah. ones, the ones that kind of, you know, the band might have a little bit different dynamic or might be going through some personal things. And I just find for me, a lot of that music tends to be particularly reflective. This, the, the fifth album of the band, which is probably considered to be by many their masterpiece and the album that you're currently touring as a 30th anniversary of was Five Days in May, or Five Days in July, sorry. Mm -hmm. 
um, which we'll talk about in a moment. But the album after that, uh, Nowhere to Hear, is often considered, you know, one of, you know, sometimes some fans or some of the more mainstream fans, not one of their favorite records because it's pretty dark. But for mm -hmm. me, when I got that album at a time in my life, I just found that music so reflective of some of the things that I was going through. And that album, for me particularly, is quite magical. So I'm kind of interested, kind of the dynamic differences, the shift between making Five Days in July into the follow-up. Well, that period, the band did undergo a great deal of change, like from Lost Together to Five Days to Nowhere to Here. You know, Five Days was kind of, a, in a way, a reaction to the Lost Together tour because that tour had been so loud and we'd done so many shows. We had this new band, so we had myself and then we had a new pedal steel player, which was an, a, a new instrument in the band, Kim Deschamps, as well as a new keyboard player, James Gray. So we had this new lineup. And, uh, and it was a very strong lineup musically, especially at the beginning. So I think, you know, the original idea with Five Days was to just record a, a, a an acoustic EP. But Jim and Greg had were very prolific at that time. And this is before either of them did any solo records. So between the two of them, they had about 30 songs or just over 30 songs. So in getting together to do this acoustic EP, we got together at Greg's place and we hired this um, mobile recording truck. And um, we we demoed all 30 songs. And then from that, I, th I think Jim and Greg got the idea like, hey, we have enough you know, material here that we could do an acoustic record. So, uh, so we made that record and, um, you know, and that was kind of, to me, I was kind of like, this is a stopgap record before we go and make a proper rock record. Like yeah. six again, <laughs> you know, cause Jim was like, yeah, well, yeah, we just want you to play with brushes and stuff. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, you know, now in hindsight, that was a beautiful thing. And, 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 and it, it, it created this whole other dimension to the band. Like, first of all, it, it was the first time really that we could make a record where we're all together in a room listening to each other without headphones there were just monitors with with some vocals coming through and uh so that creates an immediacy and an ability to respond to each other that is you can't do overdubbing you know which is basically how most modern records and certainly at the time you know most modern rock records were made you know so th so there was that aspect of it and it just added this soft element to our music like i mean we had soft songs before but these are like soft soft songs and uh and it just and there was all this basically the sound of wood you know like you know that record just has the sound of you know an acoustic piano an acoustic guitar is resonating and and so that became a, a new and defining part of our sound you know before it was like you know um Farfisa organs and and uh, uh, what is it? I forget the organ that Bobby plays, but Bob, Bobby played you know specific organ and and you know uh, uh, twangy electric guitars, Gretsch guitars and Telecasters, you know, and, and that was the sound of the band and these two voices. And then suddenly we've got this new element of of, of acoustic guitars and acoustic piano and and, uh, and 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 dobro and stuff. And so that was a wonderful thing. Uh, so we, we did that record, toured it beautiful tour during that tour 
Greg starts to sort of suffer some health issues or so it seems like he's just Greg was always, you know, I had only known him at this point for a few years, but I'd noticed that like, wow, I've never seen a man's weight go up and down so much, you know, and the reason and he was very thin and gaunt uh, for this tour. And there's some debate about this, but I think I'm pretty sure he was diabetic then and didn't know it. And uh, and then we went so we completed that tour and then without much time off, I guess a little time off, but we went to make Nowhere to Hear. There was, that was kind of a contentious record. I, I, I don't know if it came started out that way, but it was it was a louder record. It was We were definitely going to be more of a rock record. We did it at Greg's house. Uh, I mean, at that point, everybody in the band was smoking a lot of pot, except for Jim, <laughs> who had to wait around. Well, everybody else, the band was getting sewn and it was like really exasperating for him because, you know, he is not, he's not by nature the world's most patient man. And to just like be the only guy in a band full of like chronic stoners was really, was really hard on him. So, you know, I can understand why that created a bit of tension. And then Greg had this accident uh, where he fell out of a loft bed and broke a rib. And then when he went to have the ribs seen to the hospital they said oh my god you should be in a diabetic coma right now and they realized that he was extremely diabetic and i think him being diabetic like if you notice nowhere to hear and also even the solo record he did before nowhere to, i can't i think it was before nowhere to hear or, no it was came after nowhere to hear that's right gone came after gone. yeah but greg was starting to write a lot these really slow songs like flaming bed and, you know, songs that were like, um, you know, you kind of went like, how are we going to do this live? You know, like, <laughs> this isn't going to go over well, you know, at, uh, you know, at the Commodore and Vancouver. And, <laughs> you know, so there was a bit of attention about the material as well, you know, because Greg was bringing in this very slow material and he was very specific about how he was going to be played and, and, you know, and we're all sort of scratching our heads, sort of going, okay, you know. So there was the and and then I remember him and Jim had some disagreements about some of the songs were going to be going on the record. And they basically had kind of a falling out. Like the, that record was really hard for them in terms of their relationship. And Jim still just still looks back on that time as a really bad time and does not like that record <laughs> for that reason. When I listen to it. I actually think it sounds fantastic. I, you know, I did this thing a couple of years ago, you know, when we were all locked down the pandemic where I was doing a monthly. Yes. Uh, uh, reflection of all of the, yeah. all of the catalog, which I loved by the way. Thank you. Yeah. So I, you know, so I'd go back and, you know, I don't make a habit of listening to, I don't like listening to anything I played on generally. Cause all I, all I hear is things that I wish I'd done differently. That's all I hear. <laughs> But listening to that record, I was like, oh, this is actually like a really cool record. It's sonically, it's very interesting. Our The arrangements are like, there was a lot of weird instruments on there. We had things like the guitar again, this weird thing. Like, you know, and it, it's a really imaginatively done record, I think. And uh, I don't think it's materially, in terms of the songs, I don't think it's like the strongest record, but there's some really strong songs on it. Really strong songs. So there are, there are at every Blue Rodeo record, there's some... There's at least a handful of, you know, strong stuff. But uh, yeah, I thought that record was a trip. But uh, listening to it, I, I feel like it's held up well, uh, better than I expected it to. But we were definitely going through 
and Greg in particular, Greg was going through this big transition. Like he was going through a physical transition that I don't think he was even understanding, but in a personal transition. And, and then, the, yeah, the, the, you know, there was sort of conflict in the band. Like I always thought uh, the song get through to you was him singing to the rest of the band, you know, and uh, I don't know if it is or not, but you know, that's sort of what it felt like. That is a record that is really full of kind of mixed emotions, you know, and it's a, I, it's a potent record. I could certainly see why someone would identify with it. You know, I just, I find it to be hauntingly beautiful and powerfully emotional. And it's really a reflective record and particularly a lot of the stuff that that Greg's writing about, you can hear his emotions and the things that he's going through. And I think that's one of the things that I, I find that I love about so many of the, of the songs on, on the records throughout, uh, throughout their career. Mm -hmm. Another album that's a particular favorite for, of my mine and my wife's is actually palace of gold, which is another one of those kind of unique records in the catalog, right. because it's got more of almost like a vintage, Motown vibe yeah. to it in certain elements. So what was that experience like making that record? Well, that record was interesting. That was the first one done in our studio, the woodshed that was, so that record was, came out 2002. And, um, uh, I think we moved into the, we got the woodshed 2000, 2000, 2001. And then, yeah, so that record was, was done there. And some of those songs, <clears throat> Like, for instance, um, the, the title track, Palace of Gold, started out as this kind of a country two-step in the kind of in the vein of a Lee Hazelwood song. And if you hear the Sadies did a version of it, of Palace of Gold. Yeah, stories, yeah, stories often told, I believe. That uh, was the album it's on. And then the song is Palace of Gold. And uh their version is much closer to the original version of that song. But then I don't know. We'd done a. I think it was partly because we we'd done this U.S. tour, and we'd gone down to Memphis, and uh, I think Jim had visited where Stax used to be or something. But Jim sort of got all interested in Stax records and stuff, and and then I guess he turned Greg onto that. Anyway, they got this idea. They wanted to do a record. They wanted to have some songs that were kind of. Uh, have that kind of stacks records vibe with it with they want to have a horn section they want it to be like a kind of uh 60s r&b kind of vibe so songs so greg basically had these songs that sort of started out as country rock songs and then he he rearranged them to be a kind of you know 60s sounding r&b songs and so that's why palace of gold got that treatment i think homeward bound angels another one mm -hmm. um yeah, so those, so his songs, I can't remember if, if uh, I think Jim's songs, yeah, also got s some horns on them, but, you know, they were less radically re reworked. Like, I mean, Greg radically reworked his songs, you know, different chord changes, different feels, everything, you know, to sort of fit in with this idea. So, I, you know, for me, um, doing that, I, I I thought it was okay, but I, I sort of felt like, you know, I think it worked in the end. Um, I, you know, I felt like uh, a song like Palace of Gold, I pre personally prefer the original version, you know, um, as opposed to the stretched out version with all these horn shots and long outro and stuff like that. Um, but, uh, you know, 
when you're doing stuff like that, you're just like, okay, you know, this is where we're going. I'm just going go along with it, you know? And uh, so, you know, I remember that record as being enjoyable, uh, you know, and there's some tracks on it. I mean, Bulletproof is, is maybe my favorite gym song, uh, you know, or it's it's definitely in the top five, you know. And I, I think I think that's one of his best songs. I think it's just beautifully written. So when I think of that record, that's that's the song I think of. But we still do. Um, yeah, we still do Walk Like You Don't Mind. You know, so there's there's songs on that record that have uh, that have hung on. It has a cool vibe to it. So it's it's one of, like I said, it's one of mine and my wife's favorite Blue Rodeo albums. And I think I just like the albums that just kind of have a, a different experimental vibe because yeah. it's uh, it's it pushes things. And me being a, a musician, I like things that that sometimes challenge you just a little bit. And right. some things right. may be more successful than others, but it's always nice right. to see just what will happen in those situations. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that's a really strong element of the band is that every member of the band is also an artist or a songwriter on their own. So when the collective comes together, you're you're not coming into a situation where you have two songwriters in the band and everyone else is kind of supplementary, even though you may not have specific say in the arrangements per se, but everyone's bringing their own personality and the, and their own elements into the band that I think would makes it such a, a great collective. And I think I've, I hear that more now in the band than sometimes in the earlier days. Hmm. I it's funny because well, because well, first of all, I would say we are two songwriters with supplementary. You know, we are, but but you know, I mean, the supplementary part being like you know, none of us outside of Jim and Greg have any part in the songwriting at all, except you know. Uh, you know, Basil will sometimes make uh, suggestions for chord substitutions or, you know, why don't we go to the bridge here and things like that. Like we all do make arrangement suggestions, whether they're heard or like, you know, they, they're all they might be heard, whether they're followed or not is is up to the composers because it's their songs. It's their band, you know, like that's how I look. It's like, it's your songs, it's your band. It's funny, which is not always how I looked at it. I mean, I looked, I always looked at it, but that's often in the past wouldn't stop me from going in. But I still think that what you're doing is completely wrong, <laughs> you know. But I'm I'm less likely to do that now. Um, it, you know, when the band was at its busiest, you know, 15, 20 years ago or 20, 25 years ago, like all I did pretty much was play in Blue Rodeo. And so because of that, a lot more of my identity was wrapped up in it. And so everything, every decision seemed like it was really important. And, you know, every drum track, if I wasn't completely satisfied with it, I'd lose sleep over it, you know, because I felt like because this was kind of like the only representation or, you know, of what I did creatively that was going out in the world. And so because of that, I feel like I got way too involved. And, you know, so it's, you know, in the past five, 10 years, I've been playing in tons of different bands. And I always dabbled in playing with different bands, but it's really ramped up basically because Rodeo has slowed down, you know, so I have more songs playing with more people. And then it, it, that has really helped me to see like, oh, all this stuff, you know, that I would get really worked up about doesn't really matter. And, and, and not only does it not really matter, but it wasn't really my business. <laughs> mm -hmm. Like it's not really, was well, like, it's not my band. It's their band. It's their songs. Like they have a right to say like, yeah, that drum track that you think sucks. That's the one we like. And that's the one we're putting on the record. And, 
and it's my job to go okay <laughs> you know and uh, you know but it's just um, taken me a really long time to see that <laughs> it's also tough um because many of us tend to be so self-critical of our own work of course i find for me I'm most happiest with the recordings that I've got hired to do when I don't hear myself on the recording, when I can just listen to the song and hear the song, but not me specifically, then I know I did the right job. Yeah. I usually find if I listen to something and I hear me, then I usually did something that wasn't always right for the song in the first place. But that's just yeah. part of the creative process. Sometimes yeah, just, you get it right. And sometimes you don't. Yeah. I, I find that for me, it's like I, I I need about 10 years before I can fairly assess something I've done. <laughs> but 10 years later, I'll listen to it and go like, oh, it wasn't as bad as I thought. <laughs> you know. Over the years, you've done a significant amount of recording work for many different bands in the area. Although you don't always like to reflect back upon those, aside from Blue Rodeo, what are some of the albums that sort of stand out to you as being ones that are significant to you as part of your development as an artist or in your career? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I guess the first record, the very first record I ever made was um, uh, this EP called Collage by a band called Vital Signs. And that was kind of a regional hit. I that We did, um, I wouldn't say that, maybe not a hit, like an indie, it was a popular indie song. And uh, we made a video for it that got a lot of airplay on much music, like and you know the the indie music shows. This this would be 1984. We're talking, so that record was important to me. Um, but and there's been hundreds of records since, so it's really hard to say. You know, um, I guess uh, I, uh, the record I made with this band, White Noise, which was kind of an you know, Ornette Coleman influence kind of contemporary jazz thing that meant a lot to me but you know more it was more of the experience of the bands and the records it's hard to say because records themselves are not necessarily sometimes making a record can be can be like a stepping stone in your creative process but more than that it's usually being in the band you know that is that is the thing that that um lifts you as a musician Recently, I, I guess another record that comes to mind, you know, like I've made, I'm honest, I've made a lot of records, uh, you know, so it's it's just hard to even think of them all. But but one, one I made recently that means a lot to me and that and that I'm pretty proud of is is um, a record called Second Skin by Ian Blurton's Future Now. Mm -hmm. Blurton was the uh, leader of Change of Heart, and he also had a band called the Public Animal, and he was at a band called Come On for years and. He is like this amazing producer, uh, record producer. He's produced hundreds of bands, including the Weaker Thans, and and uh, and he's a, a really great songwriter and guitar player. And so this band, Ian Blurton's Future Now, is like it's it's kind of like a metal band. And uh, this record he did, uh, we did called Second Skin, was a really ambitious um, album. And with a lot of sort of long, long, well, for me, it was a, you know, an ambitious record. I mean, I, I think we did most of the bed tracks in like three days. It was like, it was, it was at the National Music Center in Calgary. It was, it was really intense. And uh, actually, I think it was two days because the first day we kind of lost. <laughs> and uh, anyway, that record means a lot to me. And, and that's, I, you know, 
I'm proud of most of my playing on that record. And, and I think Ian's Ian's work on that record is amazing. And being in that band has been a, um, a challenge for me uh, creatively and technically because I'm playing, I'm playing double kick, double pedals and I'm singing while I'm doing that. And, you know, we're, uh, and it's extremely physical, it's loud. And uh, so that band's been a, a cool part of my development. And uh, I mean, there's a, you know, a band I'm playing with now called Action Sound Band, who I play with every Wednesday at Grossman's. And that band hasn't put out a record yet, but we're recording one. But that band is also being, likely for me, uh, a really significant part of my development because it's kind of a blues-based band. Never really played in a predominantly blues band. So I'm playing a lot of shuffles and stuff like that. I also play a lot of funk and and rock and roll uh and uh the other drummers in that band uh like you know it's a rotating cast of drummers like pretty much all the bands i'm in because you know when everybody's a professional and everybody's got other gigs you yes, know for sure so uh so the other drummers are gary craig who plays with blackie and the rodeo kings and jan arden and a bunch of other people and he's like a toronto legend just a pocket king and uh and davide dorenzo who plays with Molly Johnson and Tom Cochran and and who's just a beautiful, extremely and ton, again also a ton of other people, extremely well-rounded drummer, jazz, Latin, rock and roll. He can do it all. And um, yeah, being with that band has really uh, helped me grow musically. I've learned a lot about just sort of uh, blues, blues stuff and blues based music and a lot of blues artists that I didn't know about. And, and last night our bass player is moving to Victoria. So we had a farewell gig for him last night. And so last night, all three drummers played simultaneously. So me, Gary Craig, and Davide Duranzo were all squeezed on the stage together. We were so close, we could hit each other's kits. And it was amazing. It was like playing with those two guys was like, you know, an, an incredible drum lesson, just listening to them and locking in with them and, and, uh, and playing off of each other. So that band hasn't made a record, but <laughs> but that's but they're yeah they're you know they're an example of 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 you know I guess you know how you can keep growing musically just just about everybody I play with Tara Lightfoot's new record I've done a lot of recording for her that's coming out that's an exciting record and I did learn a few things doing that record working with her producer Gus Van Gogh who's very much he's very much a parts guy he's very much like Oh, I, you know, he'll, he'll figure out the bass drum pattern he wants you to play. And so, you know, I, you know, I'd be writing out these bass drum patterns and things like that. And, and it's very specific, but at the same time, there's room for um, your own creativity and input. So he'll have this very specific thing like, oh, I hear this bass drum pattern, you know, when you're listening to it, I can't argue with that. That is the perfect bass drum pattern, you know? But, you know, I've got some other wacky idea I'd like to try. And he's like, oh, cool, let's try that. And then, you know, you put the things together and, um, and uh, and it, you know, it, it works, you know. And uh, so that record was a real uh, interesting learning experience as well, because that's very much creating a part one piece at a time. Um, and uh, which is a whole, you know, a, a whole other approach to to recording, and, and that in itself was an education as well. And that's also a, that's a great record, and I'm excited about people. Who, you know. 
you're also a singer songwriter on your own and you put out four albums with your own band called the swallows which were rock based albums and more recently you put out a solo acoustic record which i have bought recently and i think is a beautiful record oh, thank you so much what is your approach for songwriting when you're doing your own material well most of my songwriting is kind of you know a, a lot of it is autobiographical so it, a lot of it comes from that um i don't know songs are funny things it with me it usually starts with a riff it usually starts uh with um something on the guitar that i think oh that's cool maybe i can build something out of that and then or very occasionally it might start with a lyrical idea but I guess I find it hard to go from lyrics to, okay, I've got these words, now I'm going to write music for them. I usually find it's easier to sort of start with the music and then and then go to lyrics. So that I would say that's generally my approach to come up with something like chord patterns or riffs um, on the guitar and then start uh, constructing lyrics and melodies on top of that. And how has your writing changed over the years from more, because as I said, you're going more from a rock-based situation in the swallows to more of the more acoustic things recently that you've put out well i i, I yeah I, I did this solo acoustic thing just because i kind of wanted to go to a quieter thing and I, I you know lately i've also been really interested in finger picking so i've been writing more sort of finger picking based stuff so it, my writing has gotten quieter but what's been interesting is lately i've been opening for action sound at Grossman's doing little solo acoustic sets. And uh, even in a bar like Grossman's, which is not huge or anything, but even there, I sort of felt like it was a little harder to get over the soft finger picking stuff. And so I was starting to pick songs that are more like strummy and, you know, belters, <laughs> you know, uh, I, you know, and that, you know, too much of that can be a, a bit much too, but um but I am leaning towards wanting to make generally less bombastic music in terms of my own music, which isn't to say that I, I mean, part of that is just like, I have a lot of hearing loss, <laughs> but having said that, I still play in tons of, you know, I still play in loud bands, you know? Um, so, uh, but it's just, just for my own listening, I, I kind of, I, you know, it's, I guess I do listen to a lot of rock still. But uh, but I really do enjoy listening to quiet stuff. And uh, so that's just kind of being the direction I'm heading in. I was just kind of getting more satisfaction out of playing acoustic guitar than electric guitar. You know, And sometimes it's probably easier to manage your artistic career when you're just making solo acoustic records than it is trying to schedule and coordinate band elements. Yeah. Well, I think if I do ever make, uh, if I do another recording uh, record, which I would like to do, but... Uh, I mean, the, the 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 reality is now is that unless you're, you know, you unless you know that you're going to have a lot of people streaming your music, you know, because it's impossible to make money streaming unless you're streaming in the hundreds of thousands, you know, millions. You know, if you've got millions of listens, you're going to make some money. If 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 you've got you know maybe a thousand people listening to your thing, you're, you're going to make pennies. But if you spend twenty thousand dollars making the record, so you're just losing twenty thousand dollars, you know, it, you know, unless you do it yourself at home. But I, I really like working with other people. I, I do like working in proper studios, 
so yeah so i it's a question of you know do i do i want to lose all that money uh, just to make an artistic statement and i think eventually i will but <laughs> but um yeah i uh i'm sorry i forget i forget the original question what it was inspired by it's easier to work on your own versus coordinating the right different right well i guess yeah i mean it's and certainly in terms of just doing shows it's easier to work on your own and stuff like that but uh uh i just it, it, i guess it is an easier model and and maybe that's part of the reason that i went with it but um yeah, if I was going to record anymore, it would it would be with full instrumentation. It wouldn't just be a solo acoustic thing. That was just a a thing that I wanted to do once, just just to try and do it live off the floor with as little without overdubs or edits. And I, uh, you know, that was a pretty low key release, and and I I, I kind of made it that way intentionally um, because it was kind of me getting my feet wet in that area, you know. Well, I, I find it a very brave and inspired record because I oh. love I love the rawness sometimes of just someone with either a guitar, just a piano and a voice, um, because that's really where the beauty of a lot of the music starts. I know sometimes I've looked at artists over the years that will see them in that situation and then they get signed to a record deal and they put out their record and it can be very successful, but it sometimes loses the magic of what originally came from in the first place. Oh, I totally agree with that. I and I think that was one of the and I'm more and more into like I find that my favorite records these days most often are you know the things that I love the most are are the sound of a bunch of people or one or two people but just people in a room performing you know live as much as possible. Those are the things that excite me the most. And uh, and so, which is part of the reason I did that record. I, I just I don't want to like record the vocal and guitar separately, and I don't, you know, I don't I don't want to do a lot of overdubs and fixes. If it's, there's mistakes, I'll just live with it, you know. And uh, because that's that's what I find I enjoy hearing the most. And uh, and I agree with you. Uh, you know, often what happens, you know, when someone gets a more legit release, you know, after they sort of first emerge. Uh, it, it often ends up losing something because it's all slicked up and, and um, yeah, it just loses some immediacy. So on your current tour, were you getting to go back and reflect on the 30th anniversary of five days in July? Cause you're playing the whole album in its entirety. How does that feel to go back and revisit the whole thing? It actually feels um, especially lovely this time. And cause we've done it before. I think we did it on the 20th and the 25th anniversary. I remember we did it uh, at the Edmonton Folk Festival one year. And I think we also, I think for the 20th, we did it at the Winnipeg Folk Festival. And uh, it feels better now than it did in those occasions for a couple of reasons. One is I, I just think we're a better band now. Uh, and we also have Melissa McClellan singing with us, who is a stunning singer. She's uh, with White Horse. And uh, uh, she is perfect for the job but she's basically singing a lot of sarah mclaughlin's parts you know but uh but she kind of does it her own way and uh, the other thing is that we're the venues we're mostly playing it and we're playing it in halls when we did it it's that record when we when we did it you know in sort of big outdoor venues it's um it didn't it didn't feel i, I remember after those shows thinking i don't know if this record is a best record to sort of have as a record to play in its entirety live you know 
because you know you're it's quiet and it's got all these really quiet bits and there's no, you know, there's, you know, the hasn't hit me yet. The song we usually close the night with is the second song. (laughs) (laughs) So it doesn't have this kind of like, and it ends really quietly. Right. You know, so it doesn't, it doesn't have this kind of like natural rise and fall that you normally orchestrate into a live show, but playing in these small halls, it's perfect. It's gorgeous. Like, cause then you can really, the quiet stuff, like songs like Nowhere You Go and and the acapella song at the end, Tell Me Your Dream, are just beautiful in those halls. And uh, and so for me, it's a joy. It's like a joy playing that record because I love, I still love those songs, man. And it still takes, like, takes me back to making that record was truly a magical experience. Like, it truly was unlike anything I'd experienced before in my life, you know, you know, it was really eye-opening and, and wonderful. And, uh, it kind of opened a door for me into what was possible in life. You know, it was the first time I ever, you know, had spent time hanging out at Greg's place and he lived in this house full of instruments, you know, and I was like, wow, that's so cool. Like he's got 15 amps in here and 30 acoustic guitars and two drum sets. And, three different bases, you know, and all these different keyboards. And I was like, what a cool thing to do with your money, you know, like just fill your house with instruments. You know, I hadn't even really, you know, thought of that, you know, and he was out in the country and his neighbor had a pet peacock that would come and hang out and fly around. And it was just like magical and surreal, you know? And so, uh, so playing those, you know, we we play those songs every night. Anyway, you know, bad timing, five days hasn't hit me yet. We're gonna, we'll play those songs every night, but um, but playing that record in its entirety uh, does sort of take you back to that time, and so it's it's super enjoyable. And uh, those songs hold up beautifully. That's for sure. Well, and just to go back to your comment too about playing the right material in the right venue to really capture that vibe. I remember seeing a show that you did at the Budweiser stage years ago. And I remember Greg doing Phaedra's Meadows, which, oh. was a, which, which was a song that I loved. And he started singing and everyone started cheering. He had words with the audience and basically telling them to shut up in yeah, a Greg Keeler type of, type of way. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he can do his song or you can talk through Jim's songs but don't, t- don't talk to me and I'm just sitting back in my seats just laughing going okay this that's one of the things that I just love about the band is is that yeah. interaction because even when you're playing for 15,000 people there's still a dynamic to the crowd that looks at the band as being their band they stick right. they, they they still remember the days when the band was playing in clubs and it still has that kind of intimacy but although yeah. I love absolutely loved that track off that record, which I think was an underrated album, that wasn't the right venue. No, I I, I don't remember that, that. I I don't think there's any drums on Phaedra's Meadow, I, so I probably would have left the stage at that point. But that is hilarious if he played Phaedra's Meadow. At, yeah, yeah. At, but that's Greg. Like Greg is the kind of guy that like you know we're gonna play like the least likely song the, <laughs> at the amphitheater. That's a that's a very great move. And I think, you know, that song got played live like not more than three times. So that's I, I you know, I'm sure of that. So uh that's funny that one of those three times was at the Molson Yeah, yeah. A very memorable show for me. <laughs> that's great. 
Ah, Keeler. <laughs> Looking back through your time in the band, because you've been in the band now for well over 30 years, and I don't think anyone even really anticipated that the band was going to be around this amount of time. What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from that experience? Oh, uh, being in Blue Rodeo? Yes. Uh, be nice. Be nice to people. Uh, just be nice to the people you meet. Don't be a dick. <laughs> that's that's a big lesson because because it's um, because it matters to people. I and you know I mean it's not like that's that hard a lesson to learn or anything like that. But you know when you when you meet a lot of people, like you know, say in the course of a day on tour, you might meet forty people. And, uh, you know, you, it's it's easy to sort of be in, in the course of your day. You might be grumpy or something like that. And, you know, and but there's a it. It just making that small effort to be nice to people really pays for itself, not just for you, but it just means a lot to other people. And and when you're not nice, it has it can have very long lasting negative repercussions. And uh, so I don't know, like if anything, and and, and uh, it's a big lesson for me because I'm not like, <laughs> I, you know, I'm not, the, I, I don't go out in the world just going like nice, yeah. <laughs> so nice. And I just want to spread niceness. Like, you know, I don't like, you know, especially when I was younger, you know, I mean, I sort of grew up during punk rock times, you know, like being nice was not cool, you know, so it was a slow lesson for me to, you know, but, uh, but I think if I was going to take anything away from, you know, what I've learned in my years of Blue Rodeo, it's like kind of the importance of kindness, you know, and uh, a lot of that I learned the hard way, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know. I didn't just learn it by going out and being kind and reaping the benefits. <laughs> Sometimes I went out there and, you know, being a dick and reaping the benefits, you know, the not the non-benefits. So, yeah, that's a big one. And also the other thing I think that I, I, I've learned is, is uh, yeah, not to worry too much about things going the way you think they should go. Because I, for many years, I I just would have so much frustration because I'd be thinking, oh my God, why are we doing this? Or why are they doing that? Or why are they making that choice? You know, no, 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 <laughs> you know, and, and I would feel like it's really imperative that I get my, you know, disagreement across or, you know, or or if if I couldn't, that I would just sort of stew about it and and, and you know, bitch about it to everybody else and and then over the years, I've learned that, you know, often, A, I'm wrong <laughs> about these things that I might feel so adamantly, you know, about uh, in, in, a mo in the moment. Um, and also that 99 times out of 100, they matter way less than I think they do. And it's often just best to go along with things and just see how it turns out, you know. And so I'd say I'd say those are two big lessons I've taken from Blue Rodeo. Now, what are some of your most memorable experiences, good or bad? Uh, well, most of the bad ones I can't tell you about. <laughs> Not a good one. There's been lots of good ones. Sometimes there's, you know, so many good ones that, you know, or, 
like you know i mean almost every show is a good one like that's, that's the thing is like you know these days every time we're we're playing lost together and i'm looking at the audience you know and i'm uh, every show we're doing that i'm going i'm so glad i'm still doing this <laughs> like every show like that is that is a thing that happens every night you know or or you know where at some point i go oh my god i can't believe we're still doing this i feel so grateful like that's a thing that happens to me pretty much nightly now like this tremendous feeling of gratitude which say 10 years into the band i didn't always feel that way 10 years into the band i had a lot of beefs you know <laughs> i had a lot of uh you know and so you know i'd be looking at the audience going oh my god we suck tonight <laughs> you know <laughs> Or something like that. And I'd, you know, walk off stage disgruntled and, you know, so, so um, that is a memorable thing for me as I guess, or an important thing for me is how I feel about the band now when we, when we play pretty much nightly, the gratitude that I feel. Other memorable things are, I mean, there's been so many memorable shows. I'm, you know, I, uh, okay. One of the earliest ones that comes to mind is when we played Expo in Seville. This would be 92, uh, Seville, Spain. We played the Canadian Pavilion, and it was my first trip to Europe with the band. And we were playing on this stage and uh, at the Canadian Pavilion, and they had this sort of giant pond between the audience and where the stage was. And at one point in the show, Greg said, I'll give 100 bucks to the first person that gets in the pond. <laughs> and then one guy gets in. Another guy gets within 15 seconds, there's like 150 people in this pond, right? And then security are like running around like chickens with their heads off, like, ah, somebody's going to get electrocuted or something. And that's, it was funny because I, I guess that was, a, you know, when I started to realize what a anarchist Greg is. <laughs> and uh, other, I don't know, let's see, you know, like I, as I mentioned before, the making of five days was, was a, an incredibly memorable experience massey hall we did massey hall with the sadies one night this was about i guess seven years ago this was just before gord downey passed and uh you know gord downey had toured with the sadies and so he was there along with gordon pinson and gordon lightfoot uh we called it the night of the three gourds <laughs> Because they were they were all at our show at Massey Hall. Really, they were there because of the Sadies, but whatever. You know, <laughs> we were thrilled that they were there. And uh, when we did Lost Together, like as you know, it's a tradition that whoever is the opener will come on stage and sing Lost Together with us at the end of the night. And so the Sadies were to come and sing Lost Together with us. And Travis convinced Gord Downey to come on stage. And Gord was reluctant because at this point, his brain cancer was really advanced. And he, he couldn't remember the words to Lost Together. You know, he couldn't even remember like, and if we're lost, we are lost together. You know, like, like that was just kind of daunting for him. But he came on and... Uh, it was, you know, thrilling when he was announced. This was after they'd done their last shows. So, and this actually as it, I and I think it was after he'd also done his um, Secret Path shows. So if I'm not mistaken, this was the last time he appeared on stage. And he came on stage and he was just kind of smiling during the choruses. And then after the second chorus, there's this keyboard breakdown. And I guess he felt like he should do something. So he just walked up to the mic and did this vocal improv. 
and it was uh it was very moving you know and uh it was it was thrilling to have him up there you know and and i think he was gone like three months later that was a very very memorable and beautiful moment so there's some <laughs> i remember seeing one of your shows at the Sanderson Center in Brantford, and it was around the time when your brilliant Christmas album came out. I love the Christmas record. It's probably one yeah. of my favorite Christmas albums of all time. I like it too. And you had done, I think, two or three Christmas songs, and I think Greg Keeler was doing one of the songs, and he's playing sleigh bells, and and then Jim had made a comment afterwards. It's like, oh yeah, it's really nice sleigh bell playing that you're doing. He's like, yeah, I love it, but you can see Glenn over there scowling at me through the whole thing because <laughs> the, the timing is just off and i'm like that's just one of the things i just love about the band so much is just that that dynamic and and those just little moments that's you know that like i said i've, I've seen 49 shows and mm -hmm. every single one of them made an impact on me and i get more excited to see blue rodeo for multiple times than i do a lot of the other bands out there because blue rodeo in essence has been the soundtrack to my life both through good times and bad times, but everyone has that music that, that they just carry with them throughout their lives that will always help them through it. Mm -hmm. What are some of the soundtracks in your life that you always find can, that you can kind of go back to that will always just take you back to those magical places? Gosh, there's, there's so many. Uh, I guess, you know, okay, I, there's, there's a lot of <clears throat> bands from my teenage years, you know, like most people, you, you music that you that you loved in your formative years kind of stays with you and yes. i'm proud to be one of those people like music was never better than it was in 1978 i'll tell you what you know <laughs> like because i don't think that's true at all but you know a, a lot of the music from that time period i love still does that for me i and generally that's kind of uh, sort of punk bands like the buzzcocks and the fall uh, are two bands that uh, come to mind that um, are, are I still love, and um, I don't listen. I don't listen to Buzzcocks a lot. I actually still do listen to The Fall a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with The Fall. Mm -hmm. the, but yeah, the, the Fall. The reason I listen to the Fall, say more than Buzzcocks, is because The Fall put out like forty records. I don't know how many records they put out. Like an insane number of records. So the the catalog is so huge that you can you know discover new things but then you know outside of that like just so much stuff like i you know i'm thinking like okay another thing comes to mind bb king like the album completely well my dad had it when i was a kid i still listen to that record i love you know i love that record you know i was mentioning chico hamilton like records from when i was a kid jazz records and stuff that my dad had um are, are are kind of like uh comfort music for me i mean oh man it's it's always hard when people say so what do you like it's like like in the course of a day i will listen to a dozen different artists you know what i mean and they will all be in different genres and they'll they'll all be special to me one of the earliest albums i bought was actually an album that i believe you played on which was by the plasticine replicas yeah on two songs on that which i remember seeing at a club in toronto and being absolutely blown away by how cool the band was and being incredibly excited to go to a record store in toronto and find their album get it home and it's an album i just devoured around that time really good record it's funny because i never owned a copy of that until seven or eight years ago i found a sealed copy in a used record store and i bought it and i took it home and listened to the whole album for the first time again i'm only on two songs 
but I was uh, um, that record came out in 1988, and uh, I was amazed how well it held up. The sad thing about that record is that it was never, it's never been released digitally. Um, I think you can you, the videos are on YouTube. I think there's a couple of videos on YouTube, and uh, but basically, if you don't have vinyl, you don't have that record. Like you, you know, and there's a thousand copies or something. You know, like there's not a lot. You know, maybe more, maybe there's a couple thousand. I don't know, but. Hopefully one day it'll it'll get released on uh, you know on Spotify and Apple and all that stuff or released on Bandcamp at least or something you know so that people can access it because it's it's really held up well and uh, it's a, yeah it's a strong record they had really good songs. So in addition to your current tour celebrating once again the 30th anniversary of Five Days in July, what are some of the other things that you have on the horizon? Um, well, uh, that I'm excited about. Um, I'm going to continue to play with Action Sound Band at Grossman's. Uh, Tara Lightfoot is releasing her new record, and uh, I'm I'm not unfortunately I'm not going to be able to do a lot of shows with her, but I'm doing four shows with her in December. Yeah, Rodeo is also doing this European cruise, <laughs> which is going to be interesting. And then I don't know. I just I have a lot of other bands that I play with um, off and on who. Um, I'm not sure what, I, you know, because I'm busy with rodeo in the next little while, um, I'm not doing too much work outside, uh, you know, of rodeo. So I've just, you know, had a kind of flurry of activity with a, with a bunch of other bands um, behind me. So, you know, there'll be, there'll be some things coming up in the new year. I know Jim is going to be releasing a new record and touring it in February and March. So uh, that's going to be a couple of months that I'm going to have open to do some interesting things. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking possibly doing some recording of my own in the next year. Again, it that depends on when I decide that I want to lose all that money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, yeah. So it's just, it's kind of just business as usual um, coming up, but it's all, it's all really good stuff. And I'm super looking for, we're, do, we're doing a, uh, like we're finishing this five days tour in um, Southern Ontario and out East in October. And I'm really looking forward to that. I know that one of the shows that you played that I was really sad that I missed was actually back in February, you played Massey Hall and you did a one night only song seldom played theme. Yeah. And it was a show I, I unfortunately was not able to attend. And I, hoping at some point that the band decides to do something similar to that, but have some of those songs emerged back into the show because they were revisited. Yeah. A couple, a couple of them have. Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I can't think offhand of <laughs> which ones they are, but a few have, and I, I'm almost reluctant to say because ones that have made it back into the set aren't necessarily there every night. So mm -hmm. I could say, yeah, we're doing outskirts, you know, but it's like, then we might not play outskirts at Hamilton Place. But for instance, that is one that, you know, a lot of the stuff from the first album, uh, I actually, a lot of stuff from the first album was, you know, uh, what we we played during that, that night. And they just, uh, Jim and Greg just leaned towards that. I think they were just into revisiting those songs because they were their earliest songs and they're, you know, they have a special place in their hearts for them and and they're really good songs you know i mean it's, it's it was interesting to go back and and listen closely 
to that record and and as you know listen to how uh strong greg's uh lyric writing was you know songs like uh outskirts and um uh oh heck what the heck is it i can't remember <laughs> one of his songs that's on that record anyway his lyric writing on that you know on that record is very strong he was heavily influenced by people like elvis costello and, and you can really hear it in his writing you know he has really great imagery um so yeah, I I I think I you know some of that stuff is is uh, earlier some of that earlier stuff is 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 made its way into the set uh, in addition to the five days stuff. Um, it'll be interesting if we did you know there's so many the thing is about that band is, is I don't know what is it sixteen records now I can't remember yep. it's fifteen or sixteen yeah. studio albums. So sixteen studio albums, an average of twelve or thirteen songs a record. You know I don't know you do the math. It's a lot of tunes, right? And um, uh, you know, it would be nice. Like, I'd love to do some songs, you know, off of uh, um, Days in Between, for example. You know, there's some really good, good songs. Like, that's a really good record. Which is another one of my favorite records, because right. once again, it was diverse and it was different. So it seemed to be one of the obscure albums within the catalog. Yeah, it's not like it's not packed with big hits. You know, I think maybe the most popular radio song was... I'm not even sure what the most popular radio song is, uh, but you know, like, but, but uh, yeah, it, it was it. You know, it got some airplay, but there wasn't like a, a a really big song on that record. I don't think, but but it's there's a bunch of strong songs on that record. There's also a few sort of really low key tunes, you know. But yeah, I mean, you know, a lot of those songs, even as we're trying to play stuff that is seldom heard you know it's it's hard to get to all of it i remember you know some guy was writing me on facebook going how can we not play anything from days in between that's your best record you know and it's like well that's nice you think so but it's like it's not up to me and and uh you know that's just you know but maybe one day we'll manage to get to you know obscure stuff i remember years ago attending a festival i think it was in guelph because you guys were doing kind of a summer festival event for a number of years I think it was torrential rainstorms that day. And that was just after Days in Between came out. And I believe one of the songs that you played at that show was Rage, which is one of my favorite tracks off the record once again, because it's just got this amazing, powerful story that Greg just needed to tell in that particular one about a musician that he was kind of influenced by and inspired by. And to me, those are some of the magical moments that I take back from some of the shows that I attended. Just those those little things that just kind of stick with me. Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, that's um, yeah, Rage. That's one we haven't played. And like, that would be a nice song to bring back. We haven't played for at least 10 years or something. I would be thrilled to make a list of all the songs I'd love for you to play and none of them would be any of the ones that you currently play, which I also love, but then the audience would be mad because he didn't play all the hits. Yeah. That's just the nature of the band. And I like the fact that sometimes amongst the hits, there's those obscure treasures that sometimes, particularly with Greg's stuff, he'll, he'll rediscover something that he hadn't played in a while that comes back and then suddenly that becomes something that becomes a huge part of your shows for right. a number of years and then he'll yeah. rediscover something else and like this here is a good example of that and i know for a while he didn't want to play diamond mine anymore because he was tired of it but now that's something that's pretty much a standard in almost all of your shows oh yeah, yeah. if people want to keep in touch with you or see what's going on what's the best way to connect me personally or the yes. band 
Yeah, you personally. Me personally, just follow me on Instagram or Facebook, Glenn Milchum, M-I-L-C-H-E-M, two N's and Glenn. As I said, looking back, because I've been such a lifelong fan of the band and in particularly your work, it's been an absolute pleasure to actually finally get a chance to connect with you. And I really hope that I actually get a chance to connect with you in person someday. I'm very excited about your upcoming show in Hamilton in a couple of weeks. And it's been a, an absolute joy to connect with you tonight. Thank you so much, Michael. I really appreciate it. That's very kind of you. Great to talk to you as well. All the best. Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the Drummer's Pathway podcast. Please share and subscribe to get the word out. And let's keep the discussion going. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next time.